let's just get to the bottom of it, though. Let's get to the bottom of this shit, though. Let's go. The Gospel of Truth. The Gospel of Truth is joy for people who have received grace from the Father of Truth that they might know him through the power of the word. The word has come from the fullness in the Father's thought and mind. The word is called Savior, a term that refers to the work he is to do to redeem those who had not known the Father. And the term gospel refers to the revelation of hope, since it is the means of discovery for those who seek him. All have sought for the one from whom they have come forth. All have been within him, the illimitable, the inconceivable, who is beyond all thought. But ignorance of the Father brought terror and fear, and terror grew dense like a fog so that no one could see. Thus error grew powerful. She worked on her material substance in vain, since she did not know the truth and assumed a fashioned figure and prepared with power and in beauty a substitute for truth this was not humiliating for the illimitable inconceivable one for this terror and forgetfulness and this deceptive figure were as nothing whereas established truth is unchanging unperturbed and beyond beauty for this reason, despise error. Error had no root. She was in a fog regarding the Father. She was there preparing works and deeds of forgetfulness and fear in order by them to attract those of the middle and take them captive. The forgetfulness of error was not apparent. It is not from the Father. Forgetfulness did not come into being from the Father, but if it did come into being, it is because of Him. What comes into being within Him is knowledge, which appeared so that forgetfulness might be destroyed and the Father might be known. Forgetfulness came into being because the Father was not known. So as soon as the Father comes to be known, forgetfulness will cease to be. This is the gospel of him whom they seek, revealed to the perfect through the Father's mercy. Through the hidden mystery, Jesus Christ enlightened those who were in darkness because of forgetfulness. He enlightened them and showed the way, and that way is the truth he taught them. For this reason, error was angry with him and persecuted him but she was restrained by him and made powerless. He was nailed to a tree and he became fruit of the knowledge of the father. This fruit of the tree, however, did not bring destruction when it was eaten, but rather it caused those who ate of it to come into being. They were joyful in this discovery and he found them within himself and they found him within themselves. And as for the illimitable, inconceivable, perfect Father who made all, 
the all is within him and needs him. Although he kept within himself their perfection, which he had not given to all, the father was not jealous. What jealousy could there be between himself and his own members? Or even if the members of the eternal realm had received their perfection, they could not have approached the father. He kept their perfection within himself, giving it to them as a means to return to him with complete single-minded knowledge. He is the one who set the all in order, and the all is within him. The all was in need of him, just as a person who is not known to other people wants them to know him and love him. For what did the all need, if not the knowledge of the Father? He became a guide, a person of rest, who was busy in places of instruction. He came forward and spoke the word as a teacher. Those wise in their own eyes came to test him, but he refuted them, for they were foolish, and they hated him because they were not really wise. After them came the little children, who have knowledge of the Father. When they gained strength and learned about the expressions of the Father, they knew they were known, they were glorified, they have glory. In their hearts, the living book of the living was revealed. The book that was written in the Father's thought and mind and was since the foundation of the all in his incomprehensible nature. No one had been able to take up this book since it was ordained that the one who would take it up would be slain and nothing could appear among those who believed in salvation unless that book had come out. For this reason, the merciful, faithful Jesus was patient and accepted his sufferings to the point of taking up that book since he knew that his death would be life for many. As in the case of a will that has not been opened, the fortune of the deceased owner of the house is hidden, so also in the case of all that had been hidden while the father of the all was invisible, but that issues from him whom every realm comes. Jesus appeared, put on that book, was nailed to a tree, and published the Father's edict on the cross. Oh, what a great teaching! He humbled himself even unto death, though clothed in eternal life. He stripped off the perishable rags and clothed himself in incorruptibility, which no one can take from him. When he entered the empty ways of fear, he passed by those stripped by forgetfulness, for he encompasses knowledge and perfection, and he proclaims what is in the heart. He teaches those who will learn, and those who will learn are the living who are inscribed in the book of the living. 
they learn about themselves, receiving instruction from the Father, returning to Him. Since the perfection of the All is in the Father, all must go up to Him. When all have received knowledge, they receive what is theirs and draw it to themselves. For those who are ignorant are in need, and their need is great, because they need what would make them perfect. Since the perfection of the All is in the Father, all must go up to Him and receive what is theirs. He inscribed these things first, having prepared them to be given to those who came from Him. Those whose names He knew at the beginning were called at the end. As it is with every person who has knowledge, such names the Father has uttered. One whose name has not been spoken is ignorant, for how could a person hear if that person's name had not been pronounced? Whoever remains ignorant until the end is a creature of forgetfulness and will perish with it. Otherwise, why do these wretches have no name? Why no voice? So whoever has knowledge is from above. If called, that person hears, replies, turns to the one who is calling and goes up to him. He knows how he is called. That person has knowledge and does the will of him who called. That person wishes to please him, finds rest, and has the appropriate name. Those who have knowledge in this way know where they come from and where they are going. They know as one who, having become intoxicated, has turned from his drunkenness and, having come to his senses, has gotten control of himself. He has brought back many from error. He went before them to the places from which they had turned when they followed error, because of the depth of him who surrounds every place, though nothing surrounds him. Indeed, it is amazing that they were in the Father without knowing him, and that they could leave on their own, since they were not able to contemplate or know the one in whom they were. For if his will had not come from him, he revealed it as knowledge that is in harmony with the expressions of his will, that is, knowledge of the living book, which he revealed to the eternal realms at the end as his letters. He showed that they are not merely vowels or consonants, so that one may read them and think them devoid of meaning. Rather, they are letters of truth. They speak and know themselves. Each letter is a perfect truth, like a perfect book, for they are letters written in unity, written by the Father for the eternal realms, so that by means of his letters, they might come to know the Father. As for the word, his wisdom meditates on it. His teaching utters it. His knowledge has revealed it. His patience is a crown upon it. His joy is in harmony with it. His glory has exalted it. His character 
has revealed it. His rest has received it. His love has incarnated it. His faith has embraced it. Thus, the Father's word goes out in the all as the fruition of his heart and expression of his will. It supports all and chooses all. It also takes the expression of all and purifies it, bringing it back to the Father, to the Mother, the Jesus of infinite sweetness. The Father opens his bosom, and his bosom is the Holy Spirit. He reveals his hidden self, and his hidden self is his Son, so that through the Father's mercy the eternal realms may know him, and their wearying search for the Father, and rest in him, knowing that he is rest. For he has filled what was deficient, and has done away with its appearance. The mere appearance of what was deficient is the world, and mere appearance serves in the world. For where there is envy and strife, there is deficiency. But where there is unity, there is completeness. Since deficiency came about because the Father was not known, from the moment when the Father is known, deficiency will cease to be, as one's ignorance about another vanishes when one gains knowledge, and as darkness departs when light comes, so also deficiency disappears in completeness. From then on the world of appearance will no longer be evident, but rather it will disappear in the harmony of unity. Now the works of all lie scattered. In time, unity will make the heavenly places complete, and in unity, all individually will come to themselves. By means of knowledge, they will purify themselves from multiplicity into unity, devouring matter within themselves like fire, darkness by light, death by life. Since these things have happened to each of us, it is right for us to see it above all that this house be holy and silent for the sake of unity. Parable of the Broken Jars This is like people who moved from one house to another. They had jars around that were not good and they broke, but the owner suffered no loss. Rather, the owner was glad because instead of these defective jars, there were full jars that were perfect. This is the judgment that has come from above and has judged every person, a drawn two-edged sword cutting on this side and that, since the word that is in the heart of those who speak the word appeared. It is not merely a sound, but it was embodied. A great disturbance occurred among the jars, for some were empty and others were filled. Some were ample and others were depleted. Some were purified and others were broken. All the realms were shaken and disturbed, for they had no order or stability. Error was agitated, and she did not know what to do. She was troubled, she lamented, she attacked herself, 
because she knew nothing, for knowledge which leads to the destruction of error and all her expressions approached. Error is empty, there is nothing within her. Truth appeared, and all its expressions recognized it. They greeted the Father in truth and power that is complete and joins them with the Father. Whoever loves truth, whoever touches truth, touches the Father's mouth, because truth is the Father's mouth. His tongue is the Holy Spirit, and from his tongue one will receive the Holy Spirit. This is the manifestation of the Father and his revelation to his eternal realms. He revealed his hidden self and explained it, for who has anything within if not the Father alone? All the realms are from him. They know that they have come from him as children who were within a mature person, but who knew that they had not yet received form or been given a name. The Father brings forth each of them when they receive their essence of his knowledge. Otherwise, though they were in him, they could not know him. The Father is perfect, and he knows every realm within himself. If he wishes, what he wishes appears when he gives it form and a name. And he does give it a name. He brings it into being. Those who before coming into being were ignorant of the one who made them. I am not saying that those who have not yet come to be are nothing. They are within one who may wish that they come into being, if at some future point he so wishes. On the other hand, he knows before anything appears what he will produce. On the other hand, the fruit that has not yet appeared knows nothing and does nothing. Thus, each realm in the Father comes from what is, but what has set itself up is from what is not. For whatever has no root has no fruit, and although thinking, I have come into being, it will perish by itself. So whatever does not exist will never exist. What then does he want such a one to think? It is this, I have come into being like shadows and phantoms of the night. When the light shines, the person knows the terror that has been experienced was nothing. Thus they were ignorant of the Father, for they did not see him, since there had been terror and confusion and uncertainty and doubt and division. There were many illusions among them and inane ignorance, as if they were fast asleep and found themselves prey to a nightmare. In these dreams they are fleeing somewhere, or they cannot get away when chased, or they are in a fight, or they themselves are beaten, or they are falling from on high, or they fly through the air with no wings. Or, it seems, people are trying to kill them, though there is no one chasing them. 
or they are killing their neighbors and are covered with their blood. This continues until those experiencing all these dreams wake up. Those caught in the middle of all these confusing things see nothing because the dreams are nothing. So it is with those who cast off ignorance from themselves like sleep. They do not consider it to be anything, nor do they regard its features as real, but they put them aside like a dream in the night and understand the knowledge of the Father to be the dawn. This is how each person acts while in ignorance, as if asleep, and this is how a person comes to knowledge, as if awakened. Good for one who comes to himself and awakens, and blessed is one who has opened the eyes of the blind. The spirit came to this person in haste when the person awakened, having given its hand to the one lying prone on the ground, the spirit placed him firmly on his feet for he had not yet risen. Knowledge of the Father and the revelation of his Son gave them the means of knowing. For when they saw and heard him, he let them taste him and smell him and touch the beloved Son. He appeared, informing them of the Father, the illimitable, and he inspired them with what is in the thought, doing his will. Many received the light and turned to him, but material people were strangers to him and did not discern his appearance or recognize him. For he came in the likeness of flesh, but nothing blocked his way. For incorruptibility cannot be grasped. Moreover, while saying new things and speaking about what is in his father's heart, he produced the faultless word, light spoke through his mouth, and his voice brought forth life. He gave them thought and understanding and mercy and salvation and the spirit of strength from the Father's infinity and sweetness. He made punishments and afflictions cease, for they caused those in need of mercy to stray from him in error and bondage. He destroyed them with might and confounded them with knowledge. He became a way for those who strayed, knowledge for those who were ignorant, discovery for those who sought, support for those who tremble, purity for those who were defiled. He is the shepherd who left behind the ninety-nine sheep that had not strayed and went in search of the one that was lost. He rejoiced when he found it. For ninety-nine is a number expressed with the left hand. But when another one is found, the numerical sum is transferred to the right hand. In this way, what needs one more, that is, the whole right hand, attracts what it needs, takes it from the left and brings it to the right. And so the number becomes one hundred. This is the meaning of the pronunciation of these numbers. The Father is like that. He labored, even on the Sabbath, for the sheep that he found fallen into the pit. He saved the life of the sheep and brought it up from the pit. Understand the inner meaning, for you are children of inner meaning. What is the Sabbath? 
It is a day on which salvation should not be idle. Speak of the heavenly day that has no night, and of the light that does not set, because it is perfect. Speak from the heart, for you are the perfect day, and within you dwells the light that does not fail. Speak of truth with those who seek it, and of knowledge with those who have sinned in their error. Study the feet of those who stumble, and extend your hand to the sick. Feed the hungry and give rest to the weary. Awaken those who wish to arise and rouse those who sleep. For you embody vigorous understanding. If what is strong acts like this, it becomes even stronger. Focus your attention upon yourselves. Do not focus your attention upon other things. That is, what you have cast away from yourselves. Do not return to eat what you have vomited. Do not be moth-eaten. Do not be worm-eaten, for you have already gotten rid of that. Do not be a place for the devil, for you have already destroyed him. Do not strengthen what stands in your way, what is collapsing, to support it. One who is lawless is nothing. Treat the lawless one more harshly than the just one. For the lawless does what he does because he is lawless. But the just does what he does with people because he is righteous. Do the Father's will, then, for you, are from him. For the Father is sweet, and goodness is in his will. He knows what is yours, in which you find rest. By the fruit one knows what is yours. For the Father's children are his fragrance. They are from the beauty of his face. The Father loves his fragrance and disperses it everywhere. And when it mixes with matter, it gives his fragrance to the light. Through his quietness, he makes his fragrance superior in every way to every sound. For it is not ears that smell the fragrance, but it is the spirit that possesses the sense of smell, draws the fragrance to itself, and immerses itself in the Father's fragrance. Thus it cares for it, and takes it to where it came from, the original fragrance, which has grown cold in physical form. It is like cold water that has sunk into soft soil, and those who see it think there is only soil. Later, the water evaporates when the wind draws it up, and it becomes warm. So cold fragrances are from division. For this reason faith came, did away with division, and brought the warm fullness of love, so that what is cold may not return, but the unity of perfect thought may prevail. This is the word of the gospel about the discovery of fullness for those who await salvation coming from above. Their hope for which they are waiting is in waiting, and this is their image, the light in which there is no shadow. At this time, the fullness is about to come. Deficiency of matter is not from the infinity of the Father, 
who came to give time to deficiency. In fact, it is not right to say that the incorruptible would actually come in this manner. The Father's depth is profound, and the thought of error is not with him. It is something that has fallen and something that can readily be set upright through the discovery of the one who has come to what he would restore. This restoration is called repentance. The reason that the incorruptible breathed out and followed after the one who sinned was so that the sinner might find rest. Forgiveness is what remains for the light in deficiency, the word of fullness. For a doctor rushes to where there is sickness, since that is the doctor's wish. The person in need does not hide it, because the doctor has what the patient needs. Thus, fullness, which has no deficiency, but fills up deficiency, is provided to fill a person's need, so that the person may receive grace, while deficient, the person had no grace. And because of this, a diminishing took place where there was no grace. When the diminished part was restored, the person in need was revealed as fullness. This is what it means to discover the light of truth that has shone towards a person. It is unchangeable. Because of the coming of Christ, it was said openly, Seek, and the trouble will be restored, and he will anoint them with ointment. The ointment is the mercy of the Father, who will have mercy on them, and those anointed are perfect. For filled jars are usually sealed with wax, but when the seal of a jar is broken, it may leak, and the cause of its defect is the lack of a seal. For then a breath of wind and the power that it has can make it evaporate. But on the jar that is without defect, the seal is not broken, nor does it leak, and the perfect Father fills again what it lacks. He is good. He knows his plants because he planted them in paradise, and his paradise is his place of rest. Paradise is the perfection within the Father's thought, and the plants are the words of his meditation. Each of his words is the product of his will and the revelation of his speech. Since they were the depth of his thought, the word that came forth caused them to appear along with mind that speaks of the word and silent grace. It was called thought because they dwelled in silent grace before being revealed. So it happened that the word came forth when it was pleasing to the will of him who willed it. The father is at rest in will. Nothing happens without his pleasure. Nothing happens without the father's will and his will is incomprehensible. His will is his footprint, but none can understand him, nor does he exist so that they might study him in order to grasp him. Rather, when he wills, what he wills is this, even if the view does not please people before God, it is the Father's will. For he knows the beginning and the end of all, 
and at their end he will greet them. The end is the recognition of him who is hidden, and he is the Father, from whom the beginning has come, and to whom all will return who have come from him. They have appeared for the glory and joy of his name. The name of the Father is the Son. In the beginning, he gave a name to the one who came from him, while he remained the same, and he conceived him as a son. He gave him his name, which belonged to him. All that exists with the Father belongs to him. He has the name. He has the Son. The Son can be seen, but the name is invisible, for it alone is the mystery of the invisible, which comes to ears completely filled with it through his agency. Yet the Father's name is not pronounced. It is revealed through a Son, and the name is great. Who then can utter his name, the great name, except him alone to whom the name belongs, and the children of the name, on whom the Father's name rests, and who themselves rest on his name. Since the Father has no beginning, he alone conceived it for himself as a name before he created the eternal realms, that the Father's name might be supreme over them. This is the true name, which is confirmed by his authority and perfect power. This name does not derive from ordinary words or name giving, for it is invisible. He alone gave him a name because he alone saw him and he alone could name him. One who does not exist has no name. For what name would someone give to one who does not exist? One who exists exists with his name. He alone knows it, and to him alone he has given a name. This is the Father, and his name is the Son. He did not hide it within, but it was in existence, and the Son himself disclosed the name. The name then belongs to the Father, just as the Father's name is the beloved Son. Otherwise, where would he find a name except from the Father? What someone may say to an acquaintance, who could give a name to someone who existed before himself? Do not children receive their names from their parents? First, we should consider this point. What is a name? This is the true name, the name from the Father, and this is the proper name. He did not receive the name on loan, as is the case with others, who receive names that are made up. This is the proper name, and there is no one else who gave it to him. He is unnameable, indescribable, until the time when the Perfect One spoke of him. For the Perfect One alone is able to pronounce his name and see him. When it was pleasing to him that his son should be his pronounced name, and when he who came from the depth disclosed this name, he divulged what was hidden, for he knew that the Father is free of evil. That is why he brought him forth, so that he might speak about the place from which he had come, and his place of rest, 
and that he might glorify the fullness, the majesty of his name, and the Father's sweetness. All will speak individually about where they have come from and how they were established in the place of rest. They will hasten to return and receive from that place the place where they stood once before, and they will taste of that place, be nourished, and grow. Their own place of rest is their fullness. All the emanations from the Father are fullnesses, and all his emanations find their root in the one who caused them all to grow from himself. He assigned their destinies. They all appear so that through their own thought they might be perfected. For the place to which they extend their thought is their root, which lifts them up through all the heights to the Father. They embrace his head, which is rest for them, and they hold him close so that in a manner of speaking they have caressed his face with kisses. But they do not make this obvious, for they neither exalt themselves nor diminish the Father's glory, and they do not think of him as insignificant or bitter or angry, but as free of evil, unperturbed, sweet, knowing all the heavenly places before they came into being, and having no need of instruction. Such are those who possess something of this immeasurable majesty from above, as they await that unique and perfect one who is a mother to them. And they do not go down to the underworld, nor do they have envy or groaning, nor is death with them. They rest in one who rests, and they are not weary or confused about truth. They are truth. The Father is in them, and they are in the Father, perfect, inseparable from him who is truly good. They lack nothing at all, but are at rest, fresh in spirit. They will hearken to their root and be involved with concerns in which they may find their root and do no harm to their souls. Such is the place of the blessed, such is their place. As for the others, let them know in their own places that I should not say more, for I have been in the place of rest. As for the others, let them know in their own places that I should not say more, for I have been in the place of rest. There I dwell to devote myself constantly to the Father of the All and the true brothers and sisters upon whom the Father's love is lavished and in whose midst nothing of him is lacking. They appear in truth dwelling in true and eternal life and they speak of the perfect light filled with the Father's seed which is in his heart and in the fullness his spirit rejoices in this and glorifies him in whom it was, for he is good and his children are perfect and worthy of his name. Children like this, the father loves.
barbecue is back. This is not a drill. That's a drill. Today's episode is brought to you by Teach Handley. There's an idea that exists that at some point in history, the church suppressed several texts and shielded our eyes from some of the more dubious and salacious antics of biblical characters. Supposedly, the figures who have been a mainstay influence for countless of generations possess a darker, more insidious side to them, and those who have since been perceived as perfect and pious are actually flawed and depraved. So according to this idea, the church sought to cover up the fables that might ruin their saviours. They banned certain books, burned volumes in mass, and in some cases buried the contents of these darkly delectable texts in unmarked areas of the desert. So what were they trying to hide? Some ideas include the secret childhood of Jesus that portrays the Messiah as a sociopathic brat, the secret family that Jesus maintained in his final years, or maybe the more controversial stories like the Gospel of Judas that paints the treacherous follower as more of a hero. The ideas and conspiracies are endless, and whether the suppression of these texts was an attempt to stamp out Gnosticism or because certain content contradicted other more popular ideas, these books were not meant to be read. Until now. Before we get started with today's episode, a brief message from the sponsor of today's video, Teach Handley. If you're looking for a skincare routine that's uncomplicated, affordable, and effective, then Teach Handley's skincare program is probably the way to go. Teach Handley have several products available that specialize in various parts of your skin. I recommend starting with Teach Handley's Level 1 system, which comes with a daily face wash to get rid of dirt and grime, an exfoliating scrub to get rid of dead skin cells, a daytime moisturizer with SPF 20 to protect your skin from the sun, and an evening moisturizer to keep your skin hydrated throughout the night. The great thing about Teach Handley is that every box comes with an instructional card that tells you exactly how to apply each of their products, when to use them, and how much you should be using. The process of achieving healthy skin has never been easier. Implementing a quality skincare program into your morning and evening routine will do wonders for your skin. And take it from me, a great skincare service like Teach Hanley will have you feeling fresher, confident, and ready to face the day. With over 5,000 five-star reviews on their website from satisfied customers around the world, you can trust that Teach Hanley's skincare program works. In addition to amazing skin, Teach Hanley members can get tons of benefits including 20% off retail prices, the ability to customize your order box, exclusive monthly deals, and free US shipping. For skincare you can trust, go to teachhandley.com slash history, or use my exclusive link in the description below to receive 30% off your first box and a free gift. And now back to today's episode. In the first 100 years of the Common Era, there wasn't just one version of Christianity. There were a myriad of beliefs circulating at the time, some of which were more akin to the version we recognise today, and others that were a bit more out there, and arguably more creative with its imagery and content. One of these beliefs that was popular in the pre-Christian era was Gnosticism, something which many of you have likely heard of before. In a very basic explanation, Gnosticism was deemed to be a heretical movement, that taught that the world was created and ruled by a lesser deity known as the Demiurge, and that Jesus was an emissary of the Supreme Being, that which we would recognize as God, who enabled the redemption of man's spirit. I bring this up because many people believe that the Gospel of Thomas, the subject of today's video, is what you would call a Gnostic text. 
a text belonging to an early, more heretical Christianity. Indeed, many of the texts that are banned, or were suppressed by the church, were indeed Gnostic in origin. But these types of texts usually contain some outlandish supernatural elements, such as the aforementioned Demiurge, the Archons, or the Aeons. Another reason why the Gospel of Thomas may have been considered a Gnostic text was because when it was unearthed in 1945 in Narkamadi, an Egyptian village, it was found amongst 12 other large books that would form the Narkamadi Codices. Amongst these books were several Gnostic texts, including the Apocryphon of John and the Apocalypse of James, that had been possibly buried sometime in the 4th century, by either those trying to hide and preserve the texts, or by those trying to suppress them. With this, the inclusion of the Gospel of Thomas within the Narkamadi Codices kind of made it guilty by association, despite not actually containing much of the more wild things that occur in those types of books. The Gospel of Thomas is luckily preserved in a single Coptic text, that is, an ancient Egyptian language. Whilst unconfirmed, it's theorised that this text is likely a translation of an early Greek version that was written in the 1st or 2nd century. As opposed to the more complex narratives found in most Gnostic texts, the Gospel of Thomas merely contains 114 sayings, otherwise known as logia, the Greek word for sayings, or logian in its singular form, that Jesus was believed to have said. Much like Matthew, Mark, Luke and John's Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas provides us with various wisdoms that were supposedly uttered by Jesus himself, and whilst these sayings are not necessarily structured in a narrative format, you might be interested to see what some deem is a lost set of truths, and an independent source that was privy to Jesus' words. Some have even found some validity in the wording of the text, believing that certain Coptic and Greek sentences of the Gospel of Thomas appear far older when compared to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Some historians therefore believe that when trying to decide what a historical Jesus would have truly said, the language used in the Gospel of Thomas offers a more reliable account. However, considering the content of the Gospel of Thomas being just the sayings of Jesus, it doesn't really tell us much about historical Israel, or about Jesus himself. And whilst the wording of the text might appear to be independent of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, it's impossible to determine which came first, or which is a more reliable account. The Gospel of Thomas, as you might have guessed, was supposedly written by Thomas the Apostle, one of Jesus' disciples. Perhaps Thomas' most memorable act in the Bible is his doubting of Jesus' resurrection, and his requiring of physical proof that Jesus had truly been reborn. This would give rise to the popular term Doubting Thomas, which could be used to describe someone who didn't have faith. When Jesus does return, it is Thomas who is specifically asked by Jesus to touch his wounds, and when he does, he realises the truth, and becomes one of the first people to explicitly acknowledge Jesus' divinity. Beyond this, it was Thomas who was believed to be the man who first brought early Christianity to the eastern lands of Syria, Mesopotamia, and even India. So despite not being as famous as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John amongst Jesus' disciples, Thomas still got about. Furthermore, there are several texts or apocrypha that are either supposedly written by Thomas or written for him, one most notably being the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, which appears to have Thomas explaining what Jesus was like as a child. 
Most of these texts involving Thomas appear to have sprung up sometime between the 1st and 2nd century, and whilst they didn't make it into the Bible, likely on the account of them either being forgeries or Gnostic in nature, they still contain a lot of value when determining the beliefs and culture of these early Christian groups. As previously mentioned, the Gospel of Thomas has 114 sayings, some of which are nearly identical to the sayings in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. However, as aforementioned, some scholars have decided that the language used in the Gospel is older, and therefore it is difficult to say which came first, and thus, which was more likely to have come from the mouth of a historical Jesus. However, as we'll come to realise of the Gospel of Thomas, there are many references to the human spirit, as well as many teachings that encourage the merging of the body and soul. Many of the teachings here are quite specific, and though they may line up with the words of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Thomas does present us with some new concepts, those that are not congruent, or perhaps even contradictory, of the Bible's teachings. It's important to bear this in mind when reading the Gospel of Thomas. Though there are some areas that can be quite compelling, there are some areas where the possible Gnostic influence paints the text with an almost non-biblical nature. The text begins with a prologue telling us, These are the hidden sayings that the living Jesus spoke, and Didymus Judas Thomas wrote down. According to early Christian traditions, it was believed that Didymus Judas Thomas was the twin brother of Jesus. In traditional beliefs, of course, this is not the case, and whilst he may still be considered a twin, it is a twin of someone else, not Jesus. Interestingly, if we look at the etymology of Didymus Judas Thomas, we can find that Didymus is the Greek word for twin, whilst Thomas in Aramaic also could be identified as the word twin. So going by this early Christian tradition, Jesus had a twin brother, who was essentially Thomas and Thomas recorded the following words sometime during Jesus' historical existence. Saying 1. True meaning. And he said, whoever discovers the meaning of these texts won't taste death. The first saying is pretty self-explanatory, with Jesus declaring that by understanding his very words as told to us in this gospel, the reader will either achieve immortality, or more likely will achieve a state of being that renders them unafraid of death. Another idea is that death here should not be taken literally, or that it should be attributed to the spiritual death, in that by understanding words, the reader will never lose faith again. Such a saying is quite similar to the Gospel of John 8.51, where Jesus declares, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. As previously mentioned, there are many sayings in the Gospel of Thomas that have their parallels in the canonical Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Saying too, seek and find. Jesus said, whoever seeks shouldn't stop until they find. When they find, they'll be disturbed. When they're disturbed, they'll be amazed and reign over the all. Here, Jesus appears to explain that those who are looking for answers to questions should never stop in their search. He also cautions that those who find what they're looking for should be prepared to be disturbed by the truth possibly a specific caution to a non-believer, and that once they are confronted with the truth, and are able to accept the truth, they will be secondarily amazed by it. The text is broken here, however, and so we can only make educated guesses as to its true meaning. Saying 3. Seeking within. Jesus said, If your leaders tell you, look, the kingdom is in heaven, 
then the birds of heaven will precede you. If they tell you it's in the sea, then the fish will precede you. Rather, the kingdom is within you and outside of you. When you know yourselves, then you'll be known, and you'll realize that you're the children of the living Father. But if you don't know yourselves, then you live in poverty, and you are the poverty. Here, Jesus seems to tell Thomas that if you are told where the heaven is, i.e. the sky or the sea, then the birds or the fish will have priority over you, for these are their domains. However, if you find the heaven within yourself, that is to say, if you find true peace internally, then you will realize that you are a child of God and come to understand that there's little else you need. There's a degree of self-reliance promoted here in Jesus telling Thomas to essentially ignore leaders when they speak, for it is better to trust yourself. It might also be poking fun at religious leaders who claim to know God or the heavens, for Jesus explains that those things are already inside of us. He also adds that it is imperative to know yourself, or in this case, to know God, and to be without that is to know the truest poverty. This isn't poverty in an economic sense, but more so in a spiritual sense, implying that those without God are really the poor ones. He actually exemplifies this point by saying these people won't just know poverty, they are the poverty. Saying four, first and last. Jesus said the older person won't hesitate to ask a little seven-year-old child about the place of life, and they'll live, because many who are first will be lost, and they'll become one. In this saying, it might seem strange that Jesus tells Thomas that a man who has lived a full life might ask an 